Eclectic Spacewalk presents Conversations, a podcast about the uniqueness of the human condition and how, through conversation, we can continue to upgrade humanity's value systems. Everyone has a subjective, awe-inspiring viewpoint of our reality, and the goal of this podcast is to have conversations with unique humans. Eclectic Spacewalk means a broad and diverse range of Earth-based philosophies viewed from outer space. Send us any recommendations on who we should talk to next. But remember, we are not just a podcast. You can subscribe to our Substack newsletter and get first access to every podcast episode at eclecticspacewalk.substack.com. Connect with us on social media by following us on Twitter at eSpacewalk and the hashtag EclecticSpacewalk. Find us on Minds.com at EclecticSpacewalk. And as always, you can find everything on the website, EclecticSpacewalk.com. We want to talk with anyone over our shared humanity and best practices of life. Now, let's have a conversation. Hello and welcome to Eclectic Spacewalk Conversations. I'm your host, Nicholas McKay, and today I'm joined by Tiago Forte, creator of buildingasecondbrain.com which you are, and I quote, on a mission to radically improve the effectiveness of human beings while making work a vehicle for personal growth. You're also the founder of Forte Labs and a writer of the Praxis newsletter. And I quote again, together we'll expand the definition of modern knowledge work, experiment with new ways of doing more with less, and explore what it means to fulfill our human potential. Welcome to Conversations, Tiago. Thanks, Nick. Really, really happy to be here. Good. Well, so let's jump right into the first section on your personal journey. So mm-hmm. you were born here in Southern California, South mm-hmm. Laguna, mm-hmm. Uh, to immigrant parents from Brazil and the Philippines. So mm-hmm. when you were young, what did you want to be when you grew up? The main thing I wanted to be was an inventor. Mm-hmm. Okay. I think for like four Halloweens in a row, I was an inventor just every year. And what does that <laughs> consist of, the garb? <laughs> I don't think I really knew. I just, I probably got that from some TV show or some movie. I would wear like a white lab coat. We had like this um, spray for like to make your hair silver. Okay. I think I was emulating Einstein, I sure. guess. I would have like little, a little little pocket protector, like a like a protractor in my in my other pocket. I just kind of, it was like a grab bag of different inventor kind of tropes, basically. Sure, sure, sure. Did you have any like popular culture things from that? Like any, like the mad, what you were describing just now, it seems for me like the mad scientist or Frankenstein, yeah. you know, kind of stuff. Yeah, it was mad scientist, it was researcher, it was okay. normal scientist, <laughs> it was inventor, all those things. I think something about like discovering knowledge or like the, the okay. adventure of uncovering, I don't know, deeper layers of reality sure. or new new insights really always really appealed to me. That's awesome. And then so with, with that, how was how that affected by um, being born to like immigrant parents of different, mm-hmm. you know, cultures, different households, but then also their different cultures now you live in and, and grew up in Southern California. So again, another different culture. So how was that kind of uh, difference of growing up, you know, impacted you? Early yeah, on especially. This is something I've been thinking about uh, more and more. Actually, is uh, gosh, it affected me in a lot of ways. One was just the diversity of cultures. Like we would, you know, be cooking Filipino food in the kitchen. My dad's making an adobo, which is their national dish. Uh, meanwhile, my mom is playing Brazilian music. Meanwhile, we're we're speaking in Spanish because we're <laughs> in Cal- you know California. Meanwhile, like there's there's so many different influences combining. 
um, I think that always just gave me an appreciation for different cultures and, and how that relates to my work I think is probably uh, seeing things from different perspectives. Sure. You know, like something would happen in the world, some news event, and I would hear the American point of view, the Californian point of view, which is sometimes quite distinct, yeah. the Brazilian point of view, the Filipino point of view. The My, my Brazilian family is actually European. They're from Italy just oh, wow. a couple generations ago. So there's also the Italian. It's like this just almost you choose which lens sure, you want to sure. use for any given event. Well, that's that's so cool. And then especially with the, like universals like music or food, I'm, I, I bet those were very distinct uh, differences, but then at the same time when you put it together, that was a very unique Tiago, you know, forte life. Yeah. So, so like, yeah. what were some of the other things, uh, early childhood influencers, thinkers, doers? I was always a big reader, really, really big reader. Mm-hmm. I, I was definitely an introvert, very, very shy, and I needed a lot of alone time as a kid. Okay. <laughs> um, so I would just read. In the earliest years, I remember my dad... He, uh, he made a sort of a business proposition, which is he would pay me one cent for every page that I read. Oh, wow. So Instead like, of an allowance. There was okay. no, my, my dad, you know, he, he actually, his, one side is Filipino, the other side is Scots-Irish, actually. Oh, wow. so, yeah. And he, most of his life was in the U.S., so sure. there's that hard, like, you know, kind of frugal thing going on. So he would pay me one cent for every page. That was his way of both incentivizing learning and mm. also giving me an allowance. And I remember I, I read picture books and I brought all the picture books to him and said, these are all the pages I've read. And he was wow. like, no, 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 no. These, they have to be real books. Uh, I, mean, I, I remember then, this oh, moment distinctly. Wow, okay, he was like, okay. no, those aren't real books. And I was like, oh, there's like a hierarchy here. There's like kid knowledge totally. and adult knowledge. I remember that distinctly with those. I don't know if you, you uh, have seen them, but they're like the great... Uh, classics but like childrenized almost you yes. know and they have like more pictures and like watered down points yes. but i loved those growing up and then but when i found out i think it was treasure island uh-huh. or robinson i think it was robinson crusoe and yeah. then i saw the real book yeah i was like wait i've been hoodwinked you know, yeah I didn't know i've this. been tricked <laughs> <laughs> so what so any other books that come to mind that really like maybe um stuck out to you right now and, and when you think back of like having a, a big influence yeah, you know, this, let's see, my favorite genre is historical fiction. Well, mm-hmm. historical fiction and science fiction. Okay. That was probably a bit later, though. The earliest books, I would just read anything. I would just go through the library, sure. pick up, uh, I would read Hardy Boys, the, the adventure detective stories. Sure. Um, I read The Whole Little House on the Prairie <laughs> okay. uh, set, which is like this thick. I didn't read that. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I, I couldn't tell any of my friends. They would have, I, I was afraid they'd make fun of me, but I loved Little House on the Prairie. That's it's fun. an amazing story. That's fine. Um, let's see, I started reading uh, sci-fi pretty early, and then really when I discovered James Mishner. James Mishner, okay. he's, a, he's one of the most well-known historical fiction uh, novelists, and he has this style where he, he has a whole team of researchers, maybe like five or six people, and they spend years right. uh, researching a country or a culture, mm-hmm. and then he writes this just epic tale that is both historically based, so it's based in fact, but it's also fiction where he makes up characters. Oh, wow, that's great. So I, I know a, a really absurd amount about these random places that he wrote books on, like South Africa, Poland, <laughs> okay. uh, Alaska, Mexico, um, Palestine. Like he just picked but right these there, you places. Just, you just went around the entire world right there. Yeah. And that, that is very uh, interesting that that's almost reinforcing your different multiculturalism, diversity. Yeah. Um, you're also getting that through the it's pages. It's true. I guess that is a huge theme. Yeah. yeah, that's good. Okay, and then so with, with that, wait, so 
not to dwell on that too much, but historical is that more like Gore Vidal, like his things of like Lincoln and those other kind of books? Because he like researches heavily on that. But what, what was this guy's name again? Uh, James Mishner. James Mishner. Yeah, okay. I think it's. Right. I haven't read Gore Vidal, but it's probably similar. Cool. It's like there, there's a strong historical underpinning. Mm-hmm. He's not making up historical events really, but then. It's, it's funny because you read history, and I remember the contrast between history and school, mm-hmm. which is like facts and figures sure. and this dry, like really boring. And then I would go home and read Mishner, who's telling you like the story of like a, a young girl in Palestine in like the 14th century. Right. And it would come alive. And I was just like, yeah. I think I, I, I'm just realizing that one thing I think I took away from that is like, um, and, I, and this, this followed me throughout my school years, is school was something to get out of the way so that I could learn. Oh, okay. So then it was like get that done yeah. <laughs> so that I can go over here and do the learning I actually want to do. Sure. Uh, and I think that's that's how I my love of learning, uh, which I think is so so many of us it kind of gets extinguished by school. Absolutely. It was preserved. I just kind of made this split mm-hmm. and thought, okay, this is the, what the adults want me to do. This is the stuff I like to learn about. Damn, that's interesting. And then so so after this, you you now are going to study abroad in Brazil. So was that a big culture shock, or because of this kind of like? Growing up, at least in a Brazilian household, you at least had a, a little bit of a, a help. And then how was that experience valued out through your life as well? Yeah, so after, actually even before the end of college, I started several years abroad. Um, and it was really just, I was getting towards the end of college. This was like 2008, 2009. Mm-hmm. The economy was oh, yeah. just in the, in the toilet. Um, uh, December 2009 for me too. So, oh, yeah? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, me too, just yeah, yeah. right around there. Yeah, yeah. And I, I was just looking at my prospects and thinking, wow, there's really not a lot of opportunities. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, realize, you know, it's funny. There's this other moment I remember where, you know, I grew up with this, this feeling that I was different, that mm-hmm. I was special. Mm-hmm. I think because of our abroad experiences, our travel, the multiculturalism. But then, get, you know, growing up and getting to the end of college, I just realized, wow, I really... I feel special, but I don't really have any special skills or knowledge. Right. I, I had this sort of this this um, this moment where I just realized I actually need to differentiate myself. Sure. I need to develop unique kinds of things and not do what I always felt like I did, which is sample a million different things. Hey, that, that you're speaking to someone that literally has been going through that yeah. recently, exactly yeah. in, in that regard. That's yeah. awesome. And so. Um, my last year of college, I spent in Brazil in two different mm-hmm. schools. Then it was it was the end of college, and I mm-hmm. thought, I don't want to go home. Let me find something else. So I got a job in Colombia doing microfinance. Right. It was sort of a halfway point. I uh, did that for six months. Became completely disillusioned with microfinance and nonprofits in general. <laughs> okay. Um, and then I had like a year or two before started applying for the Peace Corps. Uh-huh. And so mid-2009, I left for the Peace Corps in Ukraine. Right. And that was two, almost two and a half years. And then so t- 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 walk us through kind of that in that, you know, those decisions to then allow yourself even the opportunity to do those things. Now, you know, I know plenty of people that even the prospect of moving to California or other things, mm-hmm. it gets to be too much. Mm-hmm. But then, so you apply, you go to the Peace Corps, and then now you're there. So like what are what are some of the most distinct differences i guess you could say because again yeah. the peace corps is a legitimate institution yeah. you know is it is is they're doing something they're organizing of, at some sort so yeah. like how is that different than like you just kind of microfinance in colombia studying yeah. abroad i guess i thought that it would be more structured okay i thought oh it's been around for 40 plus years it's the right. us government right. it has this in ukraine ukraine is one of the largest peace corps countries they had like 200 volunteers there sure. at the time 
And I, I guess I thought, oh, these small nonprofits, it's because they're just disorganized and don't have their stuff together. Let me go and do, do serious ah, development yes, work. Yes, yes. <laughs> that was not the case. Validity. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it wasn't more structured. It was not more organized. Wow. They basically just stuck you in this small town. And, and it's, it's by design, too. Yeah. Um, in, in, the, in the past, they would have people with highly specialized roles, like engineers or whatever. Sure. And they found over time that it's actually generalists. It's people who are just very flexible, willing to take on whatever challenge or problem in their city uh, that presents itself are really the successful ones. So I, I completely get it, and I, and I love the Peace Corps. Right. I highly right. recommend it. Especially post-college, where you just, you just like, you don't know... You don't know what you're going to do. And yeah. instead of just falling into something, having two years where you, you learn a new language, which is a huge professional asset, Absolutely. you develop skills. You know, you develop communication skills, uh, uh, you know, uh, resilience, adaptability, all these things. Absolutely. And, of course, you make awesome friends, which later in life become your network. <laughs> and it's all paid for by Top Uncle Sam. Like, it's really, it's, it's, it's a privilege. It's a privilege and a great deal. That, that's, that's really awesome that that opportunity is out there because I, I think a lot of people kind of fall in, in the nowadays more so is, are disillusioned with kind of the American academic mm-hmm. college route. And mm-hmm. then something like that, you know, is at least something to figure out if you even want to do that. Not saying that you should or shouldn't, but... Give yourself some time, you know, yeah. and let yourself actually think about what you want to do because, yeah. like you just said, it, it, the life will put you in yes. to one of these things if you don't yourself do it as do it your own way. Yeah, that that period is so unique, you know, early mid twenties because sure. it, it doesn't feel like it, but you have nothing to lose. <laughs> you just have no ties, no connect. You're just like a, a nomad. Yeah. And I really I encourage people to to something AmeriCorps, Peace Corps, volunteer, live abroad, yeah. study abroad, work abroad, do do something outside of that that mainstream channel. Absolutely. Because as soon as you get in that channel, it's it's really hard to escape and so, do something else. Well, so it bring so then let's let's kind of come back to some of the microfinancing and stuff. So well, how I mean. Because yes, I guess I would say that I grew up kind of privileged and in, in definitely not kind of, but definitely very privileged in the South. Um, you know, going to a nice boarding school, etc. But then a lot of the things, I, I I just like I I could pay for it, but not everyone can pay for yeah. it. You know, and do yeah. those things. But then all these other things of GoFundMe, crowdfunding, things yeah. like that. Yeah. How how is that kind of this entire thing of you know again microfinance? You said you got disillusioned in that, but then yeah. now this this like more decentralized kind of like yeah. per person subjective basis of microfinance yeah. is, is, is more apparent. So yeah. maybe talk on those differences you've seen of, of in that because you being disillusioned in microfinance and NGOs, I, I'm not surprised, you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, um, I think it's really different. The whole crowdfunding thing. Sure. And they, they sometimes do call it microfinance in the developed world. Okay. Um, it's just so different. I mean, I was in a, the, one of the poorest parts of Colombia and, you know, we would have these amazing stories come out of people who, who had, the, you know, their businesses started and investments funded by microfinance. But it's, it's really hard to change people's basic economic situation. Exactly. Really hard. Very hard. You know, like with these, a couple of things that I learned with these small businesses, sometimes you would fund a few of them and they would just compete with each other. Right. You know, like usually there's one, say, padería. Um, there's, there's like a panadería in Spanish. Um, that's selling bread. If you yep, fund yep. three others, you know, the, the fundamental demand, it's not like there's been a new factory that mm-hmm. has been built in the region. That there's a, the, the, the or same, a bunch more people. Or that, yeah, nothing yeah. like that. Yeah, there's yeah, the yeah. same amount of income, the same yeah. amount of demand, which means you're just splitting the demand among you know, more people. Um, and there's still uses for, for microfinance. For example, um, income smoothing. 
Okay. The, the big, one of the biggest challenges for, for poor people in these countries is just the fluctuations in income. Ah, yes. They have enough. Of course. Of course. It's just that the, you know, a dip or a medical emergency or a flat tire happens, say, at the end of the month when they have to pay their rent because they're living month to month. Absolutely. And so they would use microfinance not to like start a new business, which was sort of the aspirational use case, mm-hmm. but just to just smooth out that income sure. a little bit. So, you know, that's, that's perfectly legitimate. Yeah, and those um, peaks and troughs, I mean, that can that can throw things out, a lot of things. I think I read a statistic here in the United States even, um, I think like 40% of Americans can't afford that, like you said, $400 kind of emergency yeah. kind of thing. So yeah. it seems to be that we need some we need some income smoothing here in the United yeah. States, you know? <laughs> well, things like Uber, that, that's a lot of what it is. Okay, sure. It's like the, there's so few ways to just earn money when you need it rather than committing to this long-term thing. Oh, yeah. I think that's what we're seeing with the, with the ride sharing. And, and we'll get into the future of work a, a little bit more that, that that's great and so um, w- so you get into a little bit of product development consulting for large companies um, and then Forte Labs so maybe talk about how you got from Peace Corps you de- you know you gained all these skills and like you said and and, uh, and then now you're coming back to the United States take us through like kind of your thought process of what was going on in your head mm-hmm. what you kind of had goals on and then mm-hmm. how you eventually started Forte Labs yeah it was it was quite a journey um, so the, in the Peace Corps, I, I really loved it, really had an amazing time. Uh, but of all the projects I worked on, and, and you would work on many because mm-hmm. that's your, 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 your full-time job. That's sure. all you're doing there. Um, I started teaching these, I didn't even think of them at the, this way at the time, but essentially like how to get organized, how to plan your day, your schoolwork classes. Mm-hmm. I would do it after school, and then eventually we did weekend camps. And then in the summer, we would do like week-long summer camps. And it was stuff that I I didn't have to, it's just the basics you learn, say, going to high school in the U.S., how to manage an agenda, how to plan your classes, how to schedule your time, how to make a list of your goals, all these Mm -hmm. kinds of things. But in Ukraine, it's it's the infrastructure after the fall of the Soviet Union was so decimated, the school system, the... You know, they just don't have a strong foundation for things like planning, organization, project management, community service. Just like it's all based on chaos, <laughs> like kind of deal. Or, yeah, or just ad hoc. Kind it's of very things. ad hoc, yeah. very unplanned, um, from the state level down to the individual level. You know, mm-hmm. um, and so I just saw that these kids. It was like giving them water in the desert. You know, no one had taught them, say, how to just look at their schedule of classes and decide, okay, this is, you know, how I'm going to spend my time. This is when I'm going to do different things. And for the summer camp, we actually had them do big projects, community service projects. Right. So we would, like, paint graffitied walls. We would do trash cleanups. We um, did, like, a a renovation of a library, different things. And they would come out of these experiences. You know, we we don't think community service is kind of just a... It's a part of life here in some ways. Like you just do little, you know, bake sales or like little things sure. as part of your mm-hmm. as part of growing up. For them, it was really transformational, and they would like use these projects to apply to college. They would use mm-hmm. the planning skills to apply for jobs. I st- it's been seven, eight years, and I still hear messages back of how these little workshops impacted them. That's it's awesome. really amazing. Well, I mean, and that's so funny that we we uh, I was having a recent conversation about like little wins and mm-hmm. little kind of things uh, that long way down the road mm-hmm. become huge, mm-hmm. huge influences. Mm-hmm. So I'm assuming that like something so principled or something so you know uh, basic in the framework mm-hmm. of like the architecture of how to be organized, mm-hmm. I think that could, helped a long way. So then, yeah. so how did you take that from 
doing these workshops, doing this stuff, and then I'm assuming what you're going with this is is going into this full time as a professional and other yeah. consulting scene. Yeah. So I came back from the Peace Corps end of 2011. And uh, the job market was a bit better. Mm-hmm. Stayed with my parents in Orange County for a few months um, and decided at some point, the only thing I knew about my career, I had dabbled in so many different things. Mm-hmm. I had no clear path forward. But I knew that I loved technology, always did. And I knew I wanted to be in San Francisco, which seemed to be where that whole scene was happening. Um, and I applied to a couple jobs, uh, accepted one of them, which was for a, a small boutique consulting firm based in Paris. It's a French company, but this was their San Francisco office. Mm-hmm. And it was really, it was the very best introduction to, the, to, to kind of Silicon Valley and tech you could imagine because on the consulting side, we had clients. We were working for, we worked for Toys R Us, for car companies, for telecom companies, mm-hmm. doing, you know, consulting, whatever they need, whatever <laughs> they want is, you know, whatever the project ends up becoming. And then also we ran a co-working space it's called Parasoma in downtown San Francisco. Right. And there, um, and it was a small team, so we would manage both sides, right? Yeah. It wasn't like in a huge corporation where you're so siloed, you're so specialized. We would just do, it felt like a startup. Yeah, you're putting on a lot of hats, jack of all trades, oh, yeah. et cetera. One minute I'm on a, on a conference call with like some <laughs> executive at a client organization. The next minute I'm like literally like mopping up some something that someone spilled in the in the kitchen of the co-working space. But those are good experiences. It really yeah. is. That that's the startup mindset. Yeah. It's not it's not oh that's this this is the end of my job responsibility. Right, that's right. the line. No, you just do whatever is needed. Um, and so I spent 18 months there and I left actually it's a, it's a funny story when I had my first performance review. Mm-hmm which I had never had before. I'd worked at, right. in retail, small odd jobs, but never had like a you know, feedback session. And uh, I, rem- I remember so vividly my boss sitting me down, looking over you know, my, my form and actually giving me great feedback. She was like, you're, you're, you're diligent, you're hardworking, you're very focused, all these things. Um, but then she, she proceeded to kind of lay out this career path for me mm-hmm. um, that she, I think she thought was enticing and, and right. attractive. She was like, you know, you're a junior project manager now. In a couple more years, you could be a project manager. Right. In a couple more years, you could be a senior project manager. <laughs> a few years after that, maybe even one day a director. And she's laying out, you know, like 20, 20 years of my life. Right. And I just realized I do like this path. I don't want to walk it. Yeah. I'm not interested. Right. And something else I saw too is the the higher up that ladder I got, the the harder I would have to work. You know, I looked at my company and the direct, the, the more senior the person, the later they stayed, the harder they worked, the more phone calls on evenings and weekends they were taking. Yeah. It doesn't get better. It gets worse. Yeah, yeah. And I just thought, I better nip it in the bud right now. I better just stop. Uh, and I left. And I, I wish I could say that I, and I'm not sure I would recommend this, but I wish I had a plan <laughs> or even any savings. I had no savings. I had maybe like one month's rent. San Francisco is an expensive city. Oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> um, and that ended up actually being kind of, not perfect, but um, I needed that forcing function. I needed that deadline. And actually in the subsequent years, every, more or less every time I've launched something big or really reached a big milestone, it's been under this incredible pressure. There has to be some kind of Humans are interesting like that. We can adapt and adapt, but then when you put us in a corner, we can get some things done. So that's interesting how like that light of a fire can can really get things action. Totally, totally. I was I was dating my now wife, and I was like, you know, if I if I can't uh, pay the rent, then I have to move back in with my parents, and that whole thing is going (laughs) to collapse. That was a big incentive. (laughs) That's Um, a funny way to put it. And I just uh, I started, you know, I didn't even decide for 
a year or two. I never thought, oh, I'm starting a company. That right. didn't occur to me for a long time. I just thought, I am trying to survive. Let me right. do any project, any gig that I can to just pay the next month's rent. Um, and the first thing I created, uh, the first project I did was an online course right. because I had been very much in that world. I really believed in it. And that drew on my skills. You know, in, the, in the Peace Corps, I was a teacher. In South America, I was a yep. teacher. So teaching was natural. And the, the video stuff had become much more approachable. Mm-hmm. You know, you could just do a screen capture on your computer. You could do very simple slides. It's like those tools have now become within reach. Um, and that, that online course was, I got very lucky, was very successful, um, gave me maybe six months to a year of runway mm-hmm. that, I, that I could kind of work with. And uh, I just kind of went from there. That's great. Okay, and then uh, we'll come back uh, and talk to that just briefly. Uh, But right now we're going to take a short break and we'll come back to talking about building a second brain and Forte Labs. Okay, and we're back with conversations with guest Tiago Forte. So I mentioned in your intro a specific phrase that has great weight with me uh, from a personal hero of mine, Buckminster Fuller, and his coining of the term ephemeralization, which is, quote, the ability of technological advancement to do quote, more and more with less and less until eventually you can do everything with nothing. Mm. (laughs) Can you speak a little bit more on that concept and then how you kind of came around to starting Forte Labs? Yeah. Yeah, that's that's an important concept. I I think it's, you know, I work in this kind of intersection of tech, productivity, future of work, all these things. But one of my biggest influences has been manufacturing. Mm like traditional manufacturing. I never worked in it, don't really have any real-world experience um, in manufacturing itself, but there is this idea called the theory of constraints that was invented by this Israeli physicist in the 50s or 60s -hmm. that went on to profoundly influence how factories are run, how manufacturing is done. And there are so many principles in manufacturing that apply directly to even the most advanced modern knowledge work but you, you, you talk to most knowledge workers, you know, people who work on computers all day, and they think, oh, manufacturing, that's the past, that's obsolete, that's, that's dead. And it's, it creates this blind spot where we don't learn from the past. We don't mm. learn from the, the centuries of industrialization right. and the, the, the really powerful principles that were discovered. Um, so the, the connection to that is, I think, you know, you, you say the word efficiency, and people kind of poo-poo yeah, it, like, yeah, oh, efficiency, right. that's, yeah. for, that's for the factory, that's for, <laughs> you know, the old style, but... There's something about efficiency, which is not just doing things faster. That's what people think, oh, just like widgets, which is doing more with less. You know, that's when you have a highly efficient process, you don't have all this, like going back to Toyota, they have low waste or zero waste. That's an efficient process. That's not discarding all this stuff. Mm -hmm. And if you get that principle and and apply it to modern work, and it's leverage. That's also what leverage is, is doing a lot with a little. So there's this this thread of like efficiency, leverage, doing more with less that that goes back hundreds of years, and this connects back to we talked about history. I learned so much from history that I feel like if people read more history, they wouldn't have to learn everything, you know, reinvent the wheel and learn everything from scratch. And we're going to get into that with your second brain a little bit later because that's exactly one of your principles is like starting over from scratch again. And that just is such a time waste, resource waste, everything. Yes. That is the most non-efficient thing or inefficient thing that you could do. Totally. Um, So so in that that way, so what are some of those... I guess principles because nowadays, like for me in manufacturing, I think of additive manufacturing and 3D mm-hmm. printing because mm-hmm. then like you just said, is that well, it's almost baked into the system mm-hmm. or architecture that like, hey, this is only just this 
particular prototype at this particular time yes. and that we will always be re you know adding a little bit but then that takes in that historical context that you were just saying we have all of the other prototypes before then and yes. you can see the trajectory of where it was where the design what changed and yes. stuff like that so i mean what and when it's changed how can you update I guess you could say, other than not getting too much, but like update our concept of industrialization and those principles that like, maybe like you said, are a little poo-pooed or blind yeah. spotted right yeah. now. There, there's a lot of ways. I mean, really, my, my work with building a second brain is about ideas. Um, and really thinking, it, it sounds very funny, but to think of your life, your work, your brain as a pipeline of ideas. Like a factory, mm-hmm. idea. You know, it, it's it. It feels day to day very mysterious and creative and all these things. But you can conceive of your work as just ideas come in from somewhere, from podcasts, from videos, interviews, from books you read, articles, conferences, seminars, classes, whatever it has to come in somewhere, right? Mm-hmm. Then there's some sort of processing you do. You summarize it, you curate it, you categorize it, you turn it into some other form, you split it up into pieces and distribute it. You know, knowledge workers, it's funny, that's, if you really observe a knowledge worker, all they're doing is getting ideas, processing them in some way, mm-hmm. and then there's an output. There's some right. sort of, you're emailing it, you're, you're publishing it, you're uploading it. Um, and if you look at that process and just decide, and this was the great, the great breakthrough of Toyota, you know, up until Toyota, the assumption was you can do a lot of something or you can do it well. Mm, that was the fundamental trade-off. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. You were this you know, big factory or you were a craftsman. And mm. there was nothing in between, <laughs> right? right? And Toyota came along and said, no, you can achieve quality through quantity. Right. You can produce so many that the little uh, defects and the little errors and mistakes naturally rise to the surface, and then you fix those, sure. and then you spin up production again, and, and quality and quantity, rather than being trade-offs, become one and the same. Right. And I believe the very same thing is possible with knowledge workers. If you look at knowledge workers, it's not the case. Just look out in the world that there's people making a lot of work. Let's just talk about creative work, sure. right? Uh, or people doing the best. The people right. doing the best are also doing the most. Right. Look at people on social media. Do you ever wonder, like, how does this this person comes out with a new whatever it is book, conference, class, video, blog post, just at a, at a breakneck pace? Mm-hmm. It's because they've discovered this phenomenon of using quantity as a path to quality. Yeah, and what is it? The Parodi principle that like eighty percent or no, yeah, eighty percent of the work is done by twenty percent of the people in like an organization. I think that's one reason why. Or, or, and but then also yourself, it's like you can kind of yes. do that as well. Yeah. Um, okay, and then yeah. so so your big thing, if you you said this in your ten principles of building a second brain, um, if I had to give everyone one piece of advice for improving their productivity and learning, it would be principles over prescription. So let's go with the most broad sense of um, like why why do I need a second brain? Because what you were just talking about, knowledge work, ideas come in, they get contextualized of some mm-hmm. sort, and then you have an output. Well, that mm-hmm. you're just talking about a brain. Mm-hmm. You know, you're talking about mm-hmm. literally. Uh, synthesizing information or something to do. So why do I need a second one? You yeah. know, why why do I why do I need a second one if I'm already doing this? Yeah. So most people aren't doing that. That's the first thing. <laughs> Good. They're they're sort of coming into work from this hour to this hour and sort of just reacting to things. Mm-hmm. You know, they have a meeting and someone says, "Oh, here's the next action." And they go do that. Then they have a phone call. Someone says that. It's sort of reactive, like like bowling balls hitting each other. Sure. Um, they're not systematic about it. If they need a piece of information right now, they go and find that piece of information. If you know, they're they're not really thinking of their work as accumulating 
knowledge assets mm-hmm. and then putting those assets to use again and again is a great uh, parallel to money. You know, if you're living hand to mouth, you need a dollar now, you go get a dollar. It's like very on demand. Scarcity mindset. Scarcity mindset. Yeah, yeah. Whereas the, the abundance mindset is you you get your money and you invest it in assets that then do do work for you. They produce income for you. Totally. It's a much more long-term, strategic, intentional way of thinking that I think people clearly understand this with money, with productivity, it's less clear. Right, right. And then so, but but you also said every tip and tactic has a shelf life and will someday become outdated. Even the most cutting edge new app will eventually lose relevance. And we mm-hmm. even see that in, you know, uh, Fortune 500 companies, mm-hmm. you know, those change after a decade or so yeah. like that. Um, and then so so with that, how, how do you bake things into the system? Because for me, my biggest proponent of baking things in the system architecture is Bitcoin, mm-hmm. you know, in the blockchain. And that like, it, at least the idea, I know, I know we can get into, you know, other things and what you think about. But for me, just the, baking that into the system architecture, mm-hmm. it, it, the trust or the, the, the need for um, productive efficiency in, in manufacturing, et cetera. Mm-hmm. If it's baked into the system and, mm-hmm. it, you know, everyone gets it and utilizes it mm-hmm. as such. But if it's not, then it's just this kind of, again, ad hoc, mm-hmm. non-efficient kind of way. Mm-hmm. So um, how can you use that knowingly that this is going to become outdated, if you will. I mean, my my recommendation there is to focus on the system for generating insights rather than any particular insight. That's this. This comes back to the uh, principles, not prescriptions. People want a quick fix always. Always. They want to take a pill. They want to you know install a plugin. They want to use a certain kind of productivity app. Just do a one time one. One action that will just magically fix everything. That never works, of course, in any area. Um, it may work very temporarily as a, as a temporary fix, but you have to really be unattached from any particular hack or trick mm. or tip or prescription. Yep. Um, you know, if you look at the, the the kind of the advice industry, you know, people people in my industry, they'll often get on stage, for example, and say what they've learned. Right? Oh, I learned X, Y, Z. These are the three principles. These are the three steps. Ah, right? Yes, yes, yes. But it's like that's the output of their system. When when actually their real secret is the system itself. Mm. The the thing, the the situation they've created that allows them to even reach such insights. Not the insights themselves. Insights come and go. They come and go. Mm. And so that's why I really focus on the system. Build. You know, we have our ten principles here. I have the takeaways, all that, but. The reason I teach a course, let's say, and, and I'm, I'm working on a book, but I started with a course for building a second brain, is I need to lead people through the steps of setting things up. Mm-hmm. It's not an off-the-shelf thing, you just do what I do. It's a customization process, sure. looking at what, you know, what are the kinds of information you consume? How do you process those? Where do you publish them? And then how, working with them to kind of design their own second brain, which is what I call that system. Right. And then and then that's so fantastic because literally as you put um, in, in, in one of your, your posts, uh, Silvano Arietti says, creative products, products are always shiny and new. The creative process is ancient and unchanging. Yeah. So yeah. like, I guess, speak about, because I mean, if, if this is not something new and these principles are kind of been going on through history, I guess, take us into kind of that thinking because like you said, we're in a hyper, hyper connected world, but then a hyper fast world. Mm-hmm. Everyone like, what is it? Google or uh, what was it? Move fast and break things, you mm-hmm. know? And sometimes it's like, you may not need to break anything. You may need to go in reverse. <laughs> you may need to pause. So like you said, it's more the principles of like, what situation are we in? How can we do that? 
and then move forward rather than, hey, here's a prescription for what you do um, when this thing arises, yeah. if you will. Yeah, I mean, I think, so that quote is, is great because it shows you, you want to invest in things that last, mm-hmm. right? So if you if you invest in the fad of the moment, the trend of the moment, you're, you're kind of on a, tread, a treadmill that you're going to have to always keep running. But th- there's something more fundamental than that, which is the creative process. Um, that you can read stuff written by the ancient Greeks about creativity, and it still applies. It's just as relevant right now as it was thousands of years ago. And so that's where I I really want people to invest, you know? And and it's funny because the creative process, I've asked a lot of people, like, do you have a creative process? Very few people even know what that is or why why they would have one. Some artists do, you know, maybe like painters and poets. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They might have a little bit of awareness. But what's happening in the economy now is having a creative process went from this like tiny little niche thing needed by a tiny percentage of the population to now something that everyone needs. Every single knowledge worker, and we're all knowledge workers now, needs a creative process. Otherwise, you're trying to make something with no system, no tools, no steps. And that is not just a recipe for failure, like not creating good work. It's exhausting. It is exhausting to work and to live that way. Oh, that, that's that's totally true. And then so, but in today's today's world, I mean, I just watched a uh, TED talk that was um, Joseph, the actor Joseph Gordon-Levitt. You mm-hmm. know, and ba- he's Batman, uh-huh. you know, or like, you know, it, yeah. he's, he eventually became Robin and yeah, Dark Knight, yeah. Inception, and all yeah. that jazz. Um, his talk was specifically about creativity and attention, mm-hmm. and his kind of thought or um, whole talk was about how. He had craved, like what he thought was what he craved was attention, mm-hmm. you know, acting and, and doing all these things. But what he really craved was the underlying creativity. When that, mm-hmm. you know, when, when we, he hits Mark and then the director says action, then like he's in this zone and we're all looking for that. Um, in today's day and age, all of our attention is being split. Mm-hmm. So it seems like creativity almost is not an antidote, but it is something that goes against that attention because. If you're using your attention for something within and creative, Mm -hmm. then you automatically are putting non-attention to other things Mm -hmm. by definition. Mm -hmm. But I think a lot of people um, just have their attention just taken over, you know, because they don't have at least processes, like you said, or system principles to then be doing something else that's more attractive to themselves internally. Because if not, well, then, yeah, seeing the Kardashians and sitting in front of Netflix for hours on end, you know, and, and, yeah. and just doing that life, that that can become just the status quo and become very comfortable. Yeah. And creativity, I, it seems like, has can be some somewhat uh, to get out of that. Mm-hmm. So what, what, what are some of the principles for creativity to take um, against the, in, the attention kind of mindset that everyone's trying to grab at right now? Yeah, it's a really, it's a great observation. Oh man, there's so much there. <laughs> um, I've really been studying ADHD and related uh, conditions, mm-hmm. because I noticed I read this this article. I think it was in Harvard Business Review that now they're they're starting to think of it less like a like a disease or a condition, and and they're calling it a trait, attention deficit trait. It seems to be almost just this like thing that we all have mm-hmm. to some degree or another. Um, and it's just more maybe more pronounced. Exactly, okay. exactly. Okay. Um, it, it's it's almost just a a, a part of modern life. To have your, your attention split in that way, right? Ah, yes, yes. Um, but I think, so, man, a couple of things. First, there really are consequences to that. Right. You know, there was this, this 
this thing called the Happiness Project out of Harvard that studied the relationship between attention and happiness. Mm-hmm. And they did these, these random sampling things where they would ask you, I was part of it, they ask you on your phone, how are you feeling and what are you doing? And they would correlate what you're doing with how you feel. Uh, but anyway, you can, your, your yeah. viewers can look that up. But um, they found this, you know what the single thing most correlated with unhappiness was? Of all the things they studied, not where you are, whether you're at home at work, not who you're with, not even really what you're doing. The thing that, that was correlated, linked to unhappiness the most was just having your mind in a different place from where you are right now. Oh, Essentially wow. dissociation. Wow, okay. Yeah, yeah. Dissociation. Somewhere else. Yeah. yeah. Just You're not just, present. Exactly. Yeah. The opposite of presence. Yeah. And that, that's a remarkable finding, right? Considering the way we live. Yeah, constantly being distracted, interrupted, notified by different things. But, you know, there's all these TED Talks and motivational speeches about, oh, you just need to be more present. You need mm-hmm. to be more here. You need mm-hmm. to be more all these things. And that doesn't really work. I mean, I meditate. I love meditation. But you can't just, like, decide to be present. Um, or at least it's very challenging. So to me, creativity is the antidote. Right. Because creativity gives you something to fixate on, gives gives an object to your attention, but one that can absorb all your attention that you can sort of lose yourself in. I mean, that's the experience of flow is you you lose awareness of yourself. It's like you're not even there. Um, And so to me, creativity, flow, making things, really truly making things, not just consuming, 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 is the is a more practical way of addressing this attention crisis than just you know exhorting people to be more present, whatever that means. <laughs> right. And no. And and I think that, but I think it maybe comes in a consortium of things. Like if you are also meditating and then trying to be more present that way, but then you have you know your calendar schedules, things like that, then then that can really help out when you put together things uh, in in that nature. So then what I think what I'm going to do right now to end um, the rest of uh, this segment is basically just go through these 10 core principles of idea management because I know we said that we're not trying to put up uh, prescriptions and these are principles, but so I want to basically not exactly try like a lightning round, but like when I say the word uh, that is one of the core principles, just riff really quickly on what exactly comes up to mind or what you want to get across. Okay. So borrowed creativity, what is that? Just stealing, our art idea stealing. <laughs> yeah, don't don't s- s- borrow and give credit, which mm. I think is the difference with stealing. Give all the credit no, in the that's world. That's true. I was being facetious. And then stand on the shoulders of giants. Ah, that's what comes to mind. I don't think Newton. you're going to reinvent the wheel. Very good. And then, so the capture habit. How, how, what's what's that? So don't play catch and release with your thoughts. Yeah, it's basically we live in this hyper rich information environment but if you don't actually capture it collect it save it in one place it actually is just like the wind just flows in flows out and you feel like you learned something but actually when you're asked to recall or use any of that it's just not even there right (laughs) very true um next number three idea recycling so ideas are not single use only Mm -hmm. so it's, it's related it's once you are saving things collecting things and you start to look at this little little you know library of knowledge that you're collecting and you realize oh that when this related project comes up i can reuse that solution if i came up with a document template for a report that i was writing i can use that in the next report right if i you know made a checklist of all the filming setup and how to set up the lighting i can reuse that template every it's like every little bit of intellectual labor and it it's funny people don't think of this as intellectual labor it is when you sit down and really think you just created something 
oh, of, yes. of durable oh, yes. value. Don't just get that thing of durable value and throw it Chuck into your away. recycling bin. Use it. Yeah, yeah. Okay, number four, projects over categories. So instead of organizing ideas by categories, you idea organize your ideas according to the products where they'll be most useful mm-hmm. and actionable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is... My, my big thing I see in the entire world of organizing information, from, from libraries to databases to archives, everything, mm. people tend to organize by categories. Mm. They think psychology, marketing, uh, gardening, um, business, like as if it's the Dewey Decimal System. Right. Dewey Decimal works great for libraries. They have a full-time staff. It doesn't work for individuals. Right. For individuals, you want to organize. The, the best way to organize information uh, is according to the projects that you're working on because they're, they're right here. They're front and center. There's, there's a finite number because you're a finite human being. It right. is really a far more actionable, practical way of organizing. Sure. So slow burns is number five. Stop completing your projects via heavy lifts, grueling slogs of painful work where you create everything from scratch. There is another way, you say. <laughs> yeah, heavy lifts are, oh, I'm going to block off. I see people. I need to make a new video for my, my YouTube channel. YouTube channel. I'm going to block off the whole weekend turn off my phone, no one can talk to me, I'm not going to eat, I'm barely going to sleep. That's a heavy lift, right? Mm. And as you, you know, I'm 34, I'm, I'm, I'm slowly getting up there in years, and I can't, even at 34, I can't remotely do, in terms of heavy lifts, what I did even five years ago in my 20s. And I can't even imagine, you know, in, in my 40s and 50s. And so I think we have to start, um, and also just for your wellness, your balance, your health, you can't keep doing these heavy lifts. Slow burns are the opposite. You slowly start collecting. It's like a little drip feed. Slowly start taking a web clip from a web page, a snippet of a song, mm-hmm. an image you take maybe mm-hmm. from a museum. All these little bits of creative material, and you put them almost like a it's like a pot on your on your uh, stove. That's right. slow, like slow cooking. Oh, that's good. Yeah, You're yeah. not there having to pay attention to it. More flavor. More <laughs> flavor. It's richer. It's deeper. Yeah. It's more complex. That's good. Okay, and then number six we talked about earlier when. Um, you know, the scarcity mindset, number six is start with abundance. So starting with the abundance mindset, creativity flows from abundance. So when you're thinking that way, then the creative process, I'm assuming can just begin flowing. (laughs) Yeah. It's the same thing. Just, just don't start with a blank canvas ever, not a blank screen, not a blank canvas, not a blank anything. It's like Legos. You start with a huge collection of Legos and you start kind of piecing through them. Mm. When you find two, they come together and then you start something takes shape. Right. That's how creativity really works, not this like bolt from the blue kind of thing. That's a, that's a good point. Yeah, the Archimedes, you know, or yeah. aha moment. Eureka. Yeah, yeah Eureka. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, number seven, intermediate packet. So cranking out work in one big push, this is kind of, I think, similar to slow burns. Uh, it requires a lot of emo- uh, motivation and self-discipline. And then also I know um, decision fatigue mm-hmm. as well, like mm-hmm. what you, making more decisions and more decisions than by the time the end of the day is, mm-hmm. then you, you can make less of them yeah. or at least effective decisions. Yeah. So intermediate packets. Yeah, it's basically I, I really want people to dumb down their work. You know, if your work is complex, if it sometimes seems complex to you, which seems to be the case with everyone, <laughs> Dumb it down, break it into little pieces, tackle one piece at a time, save those pieces in one place, and reuse them to make new things. Uh, Intermediate packages is basically, yeah, when you have this massive project that's going to take months, don't 
try to, you know, boil the ocean with that. Break it into little pieces and then give all of your attention, coming back to attention. Allow yourself to be immersed in just this one. You know, if you can end every day just having created one thing of true value, Mm -hmm. you're going to be so far ahead of most people. It feels slow because you're like, I only did one thing today. But then the flywheel starts. And over a few weeks, you start having this, this like collection of assets. Yeah, I'm... Totally agree with that one. <laughs> Number eight, you only know what you make. So don't just passively consume huge volumes of information um, that gets forgotten. Instead, use what you learn to make new things. And that's what I think yeah. you just were kind of mentioning too. Actually have something of, pr- pr- produce something also. Yeah. Instead of, I see people, especially smart people who like information, like learning, they like to stockpile knowledge. Yeah. I've yeah. read a hundred books. <laughs> yeah. I've read a thousand articles. You're like, well, what have you done? What yeah. have you produced? Create? Oh no, I'm just... I'm just, it's there. It's my secret. Right. Uh, you, you really only know whether you've learned anything once you actually try to put it into practice. And then you actually realize usually, oh, actually, I don't know what I'm talking about. Right. And then you have to go back and actually learn it. <laughs> yeah. And then it's like the first, uh, th- I think it's um, in war, they talk about how your, your battle plan only lasts for, till the first contact. Yeah. Same thing with like ideas. Yeah. It only really work or theories, excuse me. It doesn't only really works until the action you really start doing that, and yeah. then you figure out yeah. if it's if, working not. Exactly. If you read a book, you haven't learned anything. You have a plan. You have a battle plan. Mm. That's it. Mm. Only once you start actually putting it into implementation, putting it into practice, do you know whether you've learned anything. That's cool. Yeah. So number nine, make it easier for your future self. You're, I'm looking out for my future Nick. You're looking out for your future Tiago. Yeah. Everyone needs to look out for their future selves. Yes. Yeah. This this is kind of a, a deeper one. It's like. You know, the, the scarcity mindset we talked about earlier is acting as if your future self doesn't exist or it doesn't matter <laughs> yeah. or... or Because yeah. only me now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You, your present self is the only self. Right. But I think as you... And this has to do with wisdom. It has to mm. do with self-awareness. It has to do with a lot of things. But as you grow in life and in work and, in, and just in general, you start to... Your self almost gets extended in time mm. where you start to connect with your past self, understand your story, where you came from, how it made you who you are, is the past, also the future. You start to think about the future, think about your kids, your future mm-hmm. kids, your grandkids, mm-hmm. future generations. And that is a powerful experience totally. to be extended. And a, a relatively minor side effect is you start thinking, oh, the way I'm constructing this, let's say, document now... I could do it a slightly different way that will make you know, my one-week future self their job easier. Mm, and you start to make different totally. decisions. And over time, again, the flywheel, you, you, you know, that person is you. So you get to benefit from that work. Yeah. It's not like you're giving something away. No, and those, are, those are those fun situations when literally you like see, see something that you've done before that you are now like benefiting from. You're like, yeah. Oh, thanks, past self, who yes. was looking out for me. You and know that makes I mean? you like, want to pay it forward again. Totally. Yeah, it's yeah, this yeah. self-reinforcing <laughs> cycle. That's great. And then so lastly, uh, number 10, keep your ideas moving. Systems that must be perfect to be reliable are deeply flawed. So again, we have 10 principles, but I guess the 10th principle is that there's not any number of principles. <laughs> you know, Don't wait until you perfectly understand all yeah. the principles to start doing this. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then so um, I guess contextualizing all of that into a second brain has been one of your your big things. So uh, a class, it started out as a class, right? It still is. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's an online course and I also do live workshops. Right. And then so um, part of that second brain, I guess, I guess to give your 
pitch, if you will, uh, of I guess taking your class, maybe a 15, 20 second pitch of like what I would as a person gain from taking, you know, your class as a how to build a, my second brain now. Yeah, I would just say, you know, building a second brain is the antidote to self-help. All of self-help, self-improvement, productivity is about improving yourself, optimizing yourself. Um, but I really just think that's not what humans are for. Mm -hmm. Humans are meant to enjoy. They're meant to play. Right. They're meant to be in relationship, be in conversation. Yep. The things that only humans can do. And so with building a second brain, the reason we want a second brain, the reason we're building one, is you want to optimize a system outside of yourself mm -hmm. so that you don't have to be optimized. You know, I, I really, you know, I don't want people to do more. So many books you read on, on this, this area are like, you need to do this and this and this. Actually, I want you to do less. I want you to outsource so much of your cognitive labor that mm -hmm. is so taxing to software, right. to technology, which has finally, after so many years, gotten powerful and advanced enough to do that. Um, and the reason it's a course is it's a customized process. I have to lead students through their own process of sort of designing their system. It's not a one-size-fits-all thing because every one of us works on different things, has different mm -hmm. kinds of creativity, different right. skills. So really, um, it is the process of creating a system that handles a lot of life for you, handles a lot of your work for you so that you can do less. Fantastic. Okay, and so that um, basically finishes up this section about talking uh, about building the second brain. So we're going to take a short break and we'll be back talking about the future of work. Okay, and we are back to conversations with guest Tiago Forte. Tiago's mission is to help knowledge workers use design and technology to transform their productivity, elevating their performance, and reframing their relationship to work. He writes, speaks, and delivers workshops on his online courses. We just talked briefly before about including uh, building a second brain. And uh, he also teaches fundamental skills for working in the digital age. And one of those being uh, writing a um, newsletter called Praxis. Mm -hmm. So tell us how that all started. How did you kind of think that writing was kind of your forte, if you will? Yeah, yeah. Um, I've always loved writing. Yeah. Uh, definitely goes goes way back. Uh, when we lived overseas, my family in Brazil, I think it's the first time I remember writing something, not because I had to. Uh, we would have these these just amazing adventures in Brazil as a family, and I would write mass emails. We had our first little oh. compact laptop. This was like 1999. Okay, cool. And I would uh, had this crazy dial-up modem connection thing, but I would write little stories, and and I still remember the the feeling of getting feedback on those. You know, as a, I was 14 years old, to have people write back like, this is such a great story. And they weren't great. I've gone back and looked. They were not well written. They were just fun, you know. And um, I kind of continued that. Uh, did a travel blog when I lived on my own in South America in college, uh, which was kind of like my first thing uh, as, an, as an adult or near adult. And then around 2014, I think it was, I started a new blog uh, called Praxis. So Praxis is the blog and the newsletter that goes mm -hmm. out. And I think the first post was this meditation retreat I went on. I, I came back and just thought, that was wild. I need to write about this. So I had people no need to know. <laughs> people need to know, or at least I need to get it out. Yeah, I didn't yeah, think sure. anyone, I didn't know if anyone no, would read. Point, yeah. um, but uh, I went on Medium. You know, it, it, it's kind of the same thing with my business. I never intended to start a business until much later. With blogging, I just started writing on Medium, which makes it effortless. You know, you get on there, you click new post, and you start writing. Right. And you hit publish. That's it. Yeah. Um, and I had my, my blog on Medium for like two plus years, two, three years. 
Um, and no system, no schedule, when I felt like, if I felt like I would write about something. Um, but then slowly started having some, some reactions, some positive feedback. Uh, and it was really only in like 2016, beginning of 2016, that I got really serious. And now mm. it's, it's the absolute backbone of everything I do. Every idea starts as a blog post. Every course that I take or conference I go to, everything I learn becomes a blog post. Right. Many of the books I read, I write blog posts. It's like that pipeline we talked about mm-hmm. earlier of ideas. Mm-hmm. What that really looks like for me is my blog. Right. Um, so it's really just my, it's my playground and my experimentation lab. You know, I, I, I don't always stick at all to just productivity. <laughs> Maybe two-thirds of the posts are on, sure. about that, but it's just like personal growth and history and cultural stuff and just anything that I feel like writing about goes there. That's great. And then so I guess... Parlaying that into one of your um, more notable uh, blog posts that that I kind of saw and and kind of uh, resonated with was your Praxis Manifesto for of human centered work. Mm-hmm. And so um, before we get into that, let's just talk. I guess set the stage on why human centered work is maybe needed more so now than ever because of automation and and all the things that you know, just the industrialization of work, et cetera, mm-hmm. even though manufacturing and all those other things may still be valid nowadays, you know, work is such a, I guess, soul crushing soul thing that people think of. And, you know, human centered work is going to be way more important moving forward into the automation realm and, mm-hmm. and modernity with artificial intelligence, mm-hmm. et cetera. Yeah. So this manifesto really came about because I, I noticed that there's this whole, there's this atmosphere right now, and I guess for some time, that you have to do whatever it takes to survive. Mm. You know, automation is coming for you, AI is coming, outsourcing, the Asian tigers, like all these threats. <laughs> name your boogeyman. Yeah, yeah, name your boogeyman. There's so many <laughs> threats. And so the subtext to a lot of that is you better shape up. You better work harder. You better sacrifice. You better really... Um, just scrabble in the dirt to to make a living, and it's it's hard because I don't want to deny the reality of those difficulties. Of those difficulties, it is really difficult. You mm-hmm. know, we were talking before we started filming about the difficulty of getting our first jobs, like how yeah. bad the, the the market is, how few opportunities there are. But at the same time, I think the way that we're going to overcome those challenges is not by like forgetting our humanity and just putting our nose to the grindstone, it's going to be inventing a new kind of work that is human-centered, where human growth and human satisfaction and human fulfillment is at the very center. And what that looks like is creative work. Yeah. Is re- you know, I really want to make work relentlessly more creative. And this even goes back to building a second brain. You know, If you look at the, the different activities you do, I think the average person, 80% or 70% of what they do can be done by computers. Sure. So... We can protect that and defend against the computers. No, I want to do that 70%. That's for me. But in the long term, I think we should just give it away. Totally. Give, give all that stuff to computers. And what that does is it elevates our, ourselves, our attention to that top 30%, which is going to get you know, smaller and smaller. Um, and that is both more creative and more human-centered. It's, it's more fulfilling. It just inherently is. Have you read uh, Team Human by Douglas Rushkoff? No. Oh, uh-huh. it's great. So I'll, I'll have to recommend this to you. Um, basically, he talks about how it's not just in work, mm-hmm. but in, in, in all of modernity and life, is that there's this almost anti-human agenda mm-hmm. in technology. You know, in wow. the, it, it's like, you know, basically deep-seated in that, like you said, just nail to the grindstone, to yeah. the grindstone. And then when you look around... 
the best human work right now, I mean, you could say is like in hospice care and stuff like that, like that very personal, very um, uh, needed and very human care. Like you don't, you know, necessarily, I guess, need a robot mm-hmm. like soon enough, but then also um, empathy, you know, anything yeah. with those type of uh, things. So um, that, that's a that's a big thing moving forward is that people have been working for so long and think that it's such a integral part of life that they forget, you know, our tens of thousands of years of not having to do that much work as hunter-gatherers, you yeah. know, and that's just like against our being of yeah. play and love and all these other things. So how, 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 so I guess let's set up this manifesto of human-centered work is the first five I'll just read is I believe in work. I believe work can be a vehicle for personal growth. I believe work can be an act of self-expression. I believe work can and should be intensely enjoyable that's not what you hear every day. And then lastly, I believe productivity productivity, excuse me, is an excellent sandbox for life. I love that line. So I guess break break those kind of broadly down in that those are things that people don't usually associate with work, is that you know, you're just kind of punching the clock, mm-hmm. if you will. And what you're saying is that work can be totally fulfilling, can yeah. be totally creative. Yeah. It can. Um, and, and there's something here where, you know, personal growth is a privilege. Yes. It's totally a privilege to have the time, the Absolutely. space, to have permission from your family, from your culture, from yourself to do something. That's an something. important point. That's a very important point. I mean, point. It, it really, it's, 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 it's a privilege in terms of money too. Yeah. You know, in San Francisco, I was a bit of a, a bit of a personal growth junkie, but like, you know, you do these weekend courses, these like self-empowerment mm-hmm. and different things. Mm-hmm. They work for sure, but they're really expensive and take a lot of time. Even if you do like a free, you know, Vipassana meditation retreat, who has 10 days, <laughs> 9, 10 days to just be off the grid, yeah. you know? So it's a tremendous privilege. So that makes me think, and this goes back like when I was in nonprofits, seeing the poorest of the poor in some of these countries where they don't have the resources to acquire the resources. Right. It's like they're just at the bottom of the bottom. And, um, and so I, I always thought, well, how, you know, personal growth to me really is the most powerful, effective thing you can do in life. It, it affects everything, your relationships, your health, your satisfaction, your productivity. So how, how do we make that more accessible? And the way we make it more accessible is by fusing personal growth and work. Right. Not making personal growth like a retreat, a course, a seminar, but into your very daily work because you have to do that anyway and that's what pays the bills yeah right it's not a part it's together and you see this you know a, a lot of the time in silicon valley companies have coaches for you they they will pay for you to do courses it's becoming part of business culture um but um but so here here's the thing though it, it's not just you decide work is enjoyable and you're going <laughs> to have personal growth and then it just happens to to ha- to acquire that privilege you have to have excellence what gives you the privilege of doing creative, fulfilling work on the edge of your capabilities is you do it really well. Yeah, the rigor to that, yes. that, that continual kind of moving, not moving the goalpost, but then getting down and down and to the very source, yeah. the source of the problem, and really doing it with skill and with excellence and with intention. And that's what has led me to productivity. You know, a lot of people say you shouldn't use the word productivity. It doesn't describe what you do. You should use a different word. I don't know of a better word because it comes down to that moment to moment. Every minute, what are you doing? How well are you doing it? Is that moment making the next moment better? Or are you progressing or are you just doing stuff? Um, I really feel like productivity is like very close to the ground. It's very close. It's like the the metal. You know, sure, you're you're sure. right yes, on yes, the yes. metal, <laughs> <laughs> like right on the yeah, uh, right on the foundation. So then, well, well, 
in, in terms of productivity, I guess you could say, that has changed over time too. So like back in the day, it was X or whatever, and then now it's it's really again going back to the attention. So how how can we kind of get get parse you know parse that out? Because if if you're working and doing all these things and it's taking up a lot of your attention, how much of that personal growth can really get in there? You know, yeah. if if you're but then at the same time, if you're only worried about personal growth, how much rigor you know are you doing from the other things of work of 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 you know basically um being called on bullshit you know if you if you try and make something and in a business kind of situation you usually have to is it good enough is it not etc so i'm trying to see of how you fuse work and personal growth in the sense of um is it only thinking about the future i guess you could say the the future work that you yourself are trying to do in, in the future and then always striving towards that or is it really just taking yourself out and then working on yourself like you said yeah, it's, it's tough because you start to get into, you know, it's different for different people. No, no, totally. And I don't want to, you know, parsimonious out too, too. Yeah, yeah. I think it's, it depends. Sometimes you do need to step away. Yeah. You know, one thing I'm really interested in these days is trauma. Okay. Because I've noticed, I read a book recently called The Body Keeps the Score. Did a course that's based on that book. A week-long course, speaking of things that are off the grid. Um, that was all about healing trauma. And the reason that's related is all the challenges that people come to me with, with their productivity, I can't pay attention, I can't focus, I feel, I procrastinate, all these things, appeared in this book. Mm. They're symptoms of trauma. Mm-hmm. And actually, if you look at, we were talking about dissociation and focus, ADHD, yes. it's pretty clear, um, has clear connections to childhood trauma. As a child, you can't often escape the situation where you're being traumatized because it's your caregiver, it's your school. So what do you do? You just leave mentally. And that becomes a mental habit. Every time you're uncomfortable, there you go. But an amazing thing that I learned in this book that I really didn't expect, I've always had the opposite. I I can focus instantly and just go down the wormhole. But I learned in the book that is equally a symptom of trauma. Mm. That's just a different way of dissociating. (laughs) Right, right, right. You just lose yourself in the thing. And it's funny because society rewards this one right? Because you can produce things, you can get things done. But a lot of my customers, you know, they're, they're like elite knowledge workers. And this is another thing you see is they get to a point in their life of success and achievement where they have everything that they thought they wanted. Right, right. But then they actually confront that inner inability to just be with their memories, with their past, with, mm-hmm. their, with their relationships. And it, it manifests as all sorts of coping mechanisms and really difficult things. Um, so I'm not sure how we got off on that track, but no, 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 it's uh, totally fun. Well, when we're talking about like other people um, in wanting to change, I guess you could say, and they want to go to change their personal journey, but then also change their work situation. Maybe they want to get to that creative process. And one of your uh, points is, I believe the main obstacle to adopting new productivity methods is people's limiting beliefs. And I think mm-hmm. one of the things that has affected me so much is that unless you're doing it 100. percent and unless you're doing it all the way, then it really doesn't matter. But in reality, nowadays, I'm on the opposite side of like the atomic habits side that we've kind of read and, and, and talked about is that it's only 1%. Mm-hmm. Like again, change 1% mm-hmm. and then that will change your outlook on what the future is. Yes, you can try and change 30% if you, you know, try yeah. it. But, yeah. if it, but if you change 1% over time, over a long period of time, that can drastically change things that I've seen yeah. at least personally. Yeah. And that can be one of the things that in, in, in limits beliefs, you know, mm-hmm. that you, you, you can't do it. 
And so I guess how, how do you get people's mindsets in that even if they are, I guess, failure, that's what I'm trying to talk mm -hmm. about, the trauma of, I guess, failing, mm -hmm. failing over and over, failing. It's like to be that, you almost have to be an entrepreneur in modernity of yourself, but that, 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 that takes a lot of time, mm -hmm. especially mental resources. So how, how do you not limit people's beliefs but then still give them kind of a pathway to try and be more productive, be yeah. more on a personal journey? Yeah, it's, it's, it's real work. Personal growth is not, it's, it's real work, really facing some hard things. Right. Um, and I think what I would say about that is, um, is the thing about personal growth is you, you learn whatever you need. And it's mm -hmm. different things for different people. For you, the 1% better every day was like probably a huge light bulb, right? right? But for another person who say that's more natural for them, the all out bet the farm mentality <laughs> can be just as transformational. And right? I, I think I've maybe gone through phases yeah, of each of those. You yes, do. Yes, yes. Everything is cycles. Yeah. <laughs> you go to one extreme and then you come back to the other extreme. You try out one belief and then you do another belief. Um, but I, I really believe that your your body, your mind, it knows what it needs. Like meditation is a great example. Like who would have thought, this is why my, my first meditation retreat was so shocking to me. I was like, I'm sitting on a cushion for 10 hours a day for, a, for 10 days and I'm supposed to learn something? But where is it coming from? No one is teaching me. I'm not yeah. reading anything. And then sitting there and watching learning happen. Like things coming up, new possibilities, new insights, new ideas, and, realize, and realizing that actually my, I don't know what you call it, my body, my spirit yeah. is this reservoir of timeless wisdom. I don't have to go. I was such a, a hunter-gatherer of knowledge, Ooh, yeah. just like read late into the night and just like hunting, 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 <laughs> and to just realize that, I, that at a certain level I have everything I need. I just need to stop getting in the way mm. and just let it arise. Yeah, and then as well, like noticing those things and then how to, to maybe get yourself into more of those situations that then it arises more. I think a lot of it does come down to courage. Okay. There's these key moments where you have to decide to turn towards the discomfort mm, rather than point, away. Very good point. And that looks so, I mean, for some people, that discomfort is stepping outside of their house. For other people, it's speaking in front of a thousand people. Right. It's really different. I have a friend who's really afraid of submarines. She has a phobia of submarines, facing even things shaped like submarines. That's her, you know, every, oh, wow. everyone has this comfort zone and there's an edge. Yep. And you know where that edge because <laughs> it shows up everywhere. That's the thing. Uh -huh. You think you can just go, oh, that's my growth edge. I'm just not going to go over there. But then the edge grows. Right. If you're, you know, let's say um, have trouble with people and you decide I'm going to work only on my computer, I'm going to work remotely. And I've solved that. You haven't solved that. Soon the postman is confronting you. You're, you're wanting to go to the store and feeling terrified. <laughs> it's like that growth edge grows until it just takes over your life. So might as well face point. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You might as well. And then as well, it seems to me that like not to get too woo-woo or whatever, but like it seems like the universe kind of just throws things at you that you need yeah. to get, get through. And it, yeah. and it will continue to do so until you get the lesson. Yeah. And then, so for, for that though, I guess the lesson that I've kind of taken from the future of work is that imagination seems like that it can be a very, very um, big resource moving forward, especially into like the digital realm of, of creating worlds and yeah. things like that. So I guess one of the things you mentioned um, on your one of your posts is the future of work is about providing opportunities for pragmatic imagination to take hold in a new generation, for deriving pleasure from one's professional life, for people to function as human beings rather than resources in the workplace. So I guess I would just you know expand on that. We we talked a little bit 
more about not being a resource in the workplace and kind of trying to create your own imagine or creative process. But then how can imagination really be kind of a beacon for the next generation? Because we're, I mean, like you said, you're 34, I'm 31. So for, uh, for younger people coming up, like how can we make sure that their imagination comfort edge mm-hmm. is as far and, you know, as, as possible rather than close. And then they're, you know, they don't want to do things that maybe should be doing because it's convenient, et yeah. cetera. Yeah, it's something I think about a lot, really a lot. Um, I think imagination is important because we can do anything now. Yeah. You know, you and I could sit in these chairs and in 30 minutes start a company <laughs> or launch a conference or like whatever it is. It's yep. just everything is ephemeral, intangible, intellectual property transmitted through the internet, right? So then the bottleneck moves. The bottleneck used to be like resources, you know, who you knew, who right. you had access to. Right. The bottleneck has moved much earlier in the process to just what do you have the courage to conceive? To conceive, of course, and then to actually act on that. That's the pragmatic part, right? right? right, and right. Pure imagination is, is, is too divergent. It's, it dissipates your energy. You need that second step. And again, why I love productivity. What is pro- productivity without imagination is just a bunch of empty containers. Mm, you yes. need the fluid, the energy of the imagination. But then if you have productivity, there's somewhere for it to go. There's, a, there's an engine for it to fuel. Um, which is why when I meet creative people, I give them productivity stuff. When I meet productive people, I give them creative stuff. It's like, <laughs> you really need both. Well, I mean, and, and it, it harkens back to, I think, a central thing of not just existence or other things, but the duality of a lot of things, you know, individual, community, mm-hmm. um, productivity, or in, attention, creativity, mm-hmm. or productivity, creativity. Mm-hmm. So I think that that really is, is, is a big kind of talking point in that when you have a duality of, of that, you you cannot segment yourself to one, mm-hmm. you cannot segment yourself to the other, mm-hmm. and you can't segment yourself to none because creativity is around, productivity is around. Yeah. Like you are in the knowledge market mm-hmm. nowadays and just any by just working and yeah. living as a human being now in modernity. It's no longer a choice. Right. It's no longer a choice. We're all in it, might as well get good at it. Right, right. It's like that quote. We are all, with technology, we're all now as gods. I think, was it Stuart Brand that okay, said that? Okay, Might as well get good at it. <laughs> like, we have these powers. We just do. Might right. as well learn to wield them to the things that matter to us. And, and, and then it's such a, it's such a need to, to do that as well because there's so much, um, I guess, creativity needed, you know, and imagination needed because mm-hmm. it has been, you see glimpses of it. There's, there's these small portions of, like, creativity in the arts mm-hmm. and stuff that really push people, but... Imagine what everyone would be like, or imagine what society or life would be like if everyone was given that kind of carte blanche, hey, go play, go imagine, go make things, and if you didn't have to kind of keep up with this rat race. And we're so close to that. Like, you look at social media, (laughs) the same person that goes, okay, I... um, I have no creativity is post is spending. I think the average Instagram user spends a hundred hours a year on Instagram. Wow. What are you doing there? If yes. not getting inspired, posting your own photos, editing them, cropping them perfectly. Well, what is know? the ROI of that? Like what exactly. are you getting from that attention that just took a hundred hours of your entire year? Exactly. And, and I, I'm not even going to say social media is bad. No, no, no. Social no, media has become yeah. a fundamental part of society. Absolutely. It's just, if you're going to do that and you are going to do it, Learn to do it well. Take the best photos you can take. Make calls to action. Ask people to sign up to your email list. Even if you don't have no idea what you're going to email them, ask them to follow you. Um, Sell something. Uh, I really think I'm totally unashamed about being commercial and using, like, 
gosh, distribution used to be impossible. Even if you had the best product in the world, you had no distribution unless you were like standard oil or something. Ah, yes. And now we all have instantaneous global distribution right. and we complain that we can't think of anything. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very good point. Okay, and then so I guess uh, one of the things I did want to mention to you because it's like, or talk to you about is the practical nature, nature of all this is, you know, you come up with an idea and you make a newsletter or a blog. You come up with this thing for a second brain, you make a course. And again, this theory to action, theory to action, and actually doing it. Well, you did make a practical choice of literally looking around and then saying, hey, I'm going to do a courageous, and then other people would say maybe non efficient thing of moving to Mexico City to mm-hmm. an international thing. So, like, mm-hmm. take us through your thinking of, well, you know, it came up as a theory, but then the actionable thing made sense for you to go down to Mexico City for at least a little bit because you mentioned that coming back to, to Long Beach uh, possibly next year. But like that takes a lot of courage just to even think about that idea. Then when it comes up, the opportunity comes, then you actually take it, and then actually now you're fulfilling it by, by doing that. So mm-hmm. to go take us through like theory to action, because yeah. like that's a real, real world use case that yeah. some viewer could take that like, well, I, I, how can I be courageous? Well, y- you've done it in yeah. a lot of different ways, and, and I think moving internationally is one of the biggest things that you could do is set up a business, yeah. you know? Yeah, you know, you inefficiency is wonderful. It's wonderful to be inefficient, but you can only choose to become inefficient if you're already efficient. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good way to put it. Um, Mexico really was was the confluence of a few things. Um, my wife is Mexican American. She all mm-hmm. she uh, was born here. Several generations have been here. She wanted to learn Spanish. Um, I've been remote essentially the whole time I've had the business. She left her job in San Francisco end of last year, and we just realized again these these possibilities, sure. these opportunities. You yes. just, it's like, and it's funny. You just like really have to realize it. We were sitting in the kitchen, just like, wait, we could move. <laughs> it's like, oh, you know, you, you you have to expand kind of the range of things you're considering. Um, and so it was her becoming remote. She now works with me and also has her own online course. So we're basically doing the same thing. Uh, wanted to live in a Spanish-speaking country, wanted to live in a big city, and wanted to be close to our families in Southern California. Sure. There's only one city that fulfills all those <laughs> all three those criteria. Things. And it really is close. We actually, it's a three-hour, three-and-a-half-hour flight from Mexico City right. to L.A., where our families live, and we come back more often than when we lived in San Francisco. <laughs> and that's it's funny. A, that's an hour and a half that, like, yeah. on a flight. Like, yeah. uh, you're up and then you're down. Yeah, you know? it's just like commuting. We come back almost every month, sometimes for a weekend. Wow, uh, you can get flights as cheap as $100 one way, each way. Okay. It's like, you know. Um, and actually, I think, so I'm working on a post why Mexico City is going to be the future hub for remote workers. Uh-huh. It is the best city for remote workers I've ever been to. And people don't realize it because of its bad reputation, which is totally unjustified. Everyone yeah. I talk to is like, aren't there just like daily shootings in the streets? Oh, when I was in Tijuana, that was the same thing. Like, right? Apparently it's like, you know, gangs and, and everything. It's, like, it's it, probably statistically, you know, it maybe, is more dangerous. Yeah, probably. But when we lived in Oakland, you know, we, we witnessed two shootings on our street. It's not like the U.S. is, you know, a paradise of right. peace and quiet. No, very true. So I think um, you got to go for those kinds of things. And the future of work, man, is, is going to be so about that. You know, especially when we have global internet. Because right now, actually, connectivity is quite challenging. But when you can get just fantastic internet anywhere, you're going to have people living in shacks on the North Pole, <laughs> in like the bottom of the tip of South Africa, on sure. boats in the sure. middle of the ocean. Like it, the the constraint, the, the the deciding factor will be what do you need for your creativity? Yeah. And my growing up with an artist as a father it was always like this. If he kind of lost inspiration, we're moving to Brazil. 
that wasn't like the, the main driving force, but it was like he, he actually used our trip to Brazil to stimulate his creativity. Sure. He took a trip to China, comes back and is making all these Chinese-themed paintings. You use your life to fuel your work instead of you know, deciding your life based on what you have to do for your work. That's a very good point. Very good point. And then, so lastly, um, I ask every uh, person on uh, Eclectic Spacewalk Conversations, uh, the overview effect is basically when you astronauts get up to, you know, the International Space Station or the moon level Mm -hmm. and then look down at Earth, um, and they kind of have a psychological shift of like a oneness. Um, What would you say to, if the world was looking up at you, uh, say, again, an elevator pitch, you know, 30 (laughs) seconds or so, like what, what would you say if you had the opportunity to tell the world something? I know that's a that's a big question, but you know, yeah. What's the first thing that comes to mind? The thing that comes to mind is is kind of what we were saying earlier, which is let the machines have the jobs. Let them have it. Uh, at least the current jobs, or the easy jobs, or the jobs that don't need a full fledged human yeah. to do. Um, you know. It makes me really it makes me really sad when I see especially in Mexico it's this way. They'll just hire someone to just like stand somewhere all day long. Yeah. You know, in, in Mexico labor is quite cheap so they can do that. Or there'll be five people just like at a at a parking garage just watching it. Right. And I, I, I understand that you need a lot of education. It's a great privilege to do knowledge work, to do creative work, but it really makes me sad when I see a human, the most precious, complex thing in the universe, being dedicated to just being a stationary object. And I, I kind of see it as my mission to, to make knowledge work universal. That's good. To make it accessible to everyone who wants to do it, basically. Okay. Well, I, I think that's a great way to end it because, you know, we'll let the, the robots or whoever take, the, take that work and, you know, focus on human-centered work for the future. Cool. So, well, uh, thanks, Tiago. Thanks so much for coming on Conversations by Eclectic Spacewalk. And until next time, Ad Astra. Eclectic Spacewalk presents Conversations, a podcast about the uniqueness of the human condition and how, through conversation, we can continue to upgrade humanity's value systems.